Much of history has just been erased and thrown to the back burner. Gainesville native Sol Marie Duncan says younger people today have no idea about the black history of the region as late as the 1960s. And it's not all good. There's no one hug that African Americans can say that this is ours. We don't have that here. Because of the lack of insight, she's determined to keep the legacy of her alma mater, Lincoln High, alive, despite the closure the all-black school experienced in 1970. To share the legacy means that now you're sharing what it means to have that kind of pride in a place. That way she can pass it on. We want people to have something that they can be proud of, because we are really proud of Lincoln High School. That won't change. It's a legacy that can be given to students at Lincoln Middle School, which is at the same location where they lost their school all those years ago. Just memories, just full of memories. Besides passing down the legacy, alumni like Albert White are working on building a wall to memorialize the institution. For almost 20 years, he's been striving to raise $70,000. We are just so close now. A GoFundMe page was created in July of 2020. So far, $1,620 is donated out of a $30,000 goal. It would be bringing back what we have loved for all of these years. Duncan says it would be nice to have a physical tribute. It's good to have a lasting memorial that for years and years people can come by and look at it. Maybe it will give somebody else an incentive to do more. But with the school long gone, former teacher Barbara Mason-Smith still sees bits and pieces of it in her everyday life. Today, we still are like a family. Many of the Lincoln teachers, I was counting them up one day, are now deceased. But right here in my neighborhood, there's six of us right here in the neighborhood that taught together. And three of us go to the same church. And we often talk about how we enjoyed the days of Lincoln High School. Her daughter hates going out with her because of this reason. She said, come on, run to the store with me. I said, oh no, I gotta put on some makeup and I gotta comb my hair and I gotta put on some decent clothes. She said, why? I said, because I'm gonna meet a student, a former student. I gotta look presentable. They like for me to look pretty. <laughs> she teases her former students whenever she sees them. They tell me, you haven't changed that much. And I say, I'm 40 pounds heavier. What you mean I haven't changed that much? Despite Lincoln's closure, its history is forever embedded in the Gainesville community. I think Lincoln will live on for many, many years. It's been over 50 years now since it's been closed. But it's the spirit. The big red terrier, the spirit, is going to live on in the lives of many students. The amount of people alive to tell the story of Lincoln High continues to dwindle. If you listen closely, whispers of its legacy still surround the area. Malia Leiden, WUFT News. When I was moving in, I had my roommate come in, you know, being the friendly guy that I am, I turn around, hi, my name is Joe. That's Joseph McLeod, a former University of Florida student in a 2009 interview from the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. And I held out my hand to shake his hand. He looked at me, turned around, never saw the guy again. This is 1971, and McLeod is discussing an interaction in a time when racial tensions were high. 
Black students were outnumbered, 343 to 20,000 white. McLeod says that disparity in population contributed to the black student union's push for their rights. We got together, had meetings over a period of time, and came up with a set of demands. One, for the university to recruit more black students, to open the Institute of Black Culture, to recruit more black faculty, and there were maybe four or five other demands that we had. On April 15th, 1971, students went to Tiger Hall to talk with then-president Stephen C. O'Connell about these demands. Another student, Betty Stewart Fullwood, says they tried three times to have a conversation. I was just drawn to it because it was so relevant at the time. Carl Smart joined because he wanted to fight for minority rights and improve the campus. It wasn't as confrontational maybe as it appeared. Just it's time to make this statement and time for people to listen up. Gwen Francis, another student, says the administration wasn't having it. We had a sit-in, and we sat in his office, probably maybe for about 45 minutes, and he proceeded to have us arrested. So the buses came, and they took us all down to the Lachua County Jail. Over 60 students were arrested or suspended. Smart says it was a difficult experience. Very frightening, is all I recall. It was scary, but we were all there together, so it was helpful. They got out that same day, but the campus community wasn't satisfied and called for amnesty for those suspended and arrested. O'Connell refused, stating it would show the sit-in was acceptable conduct. This denial led over 100 Black students and supporters to withdraw from the university. Fullwood was one of them, but came back after a semester or two and graduated. When she arrived, she noticed a shift had occurred as O'Connell and the administration warmed to change. That fall term is when we had more African-American faculty and staff to be recruited to come on, and I'm sure there were more students that were admitted as well. It has been 50 years since that fateful April 15th. But with nearly a year of racial unrest nationally, a lurking question is how far the university has come in improving the Black student experience. Malia Leiden, WUFT News. Catching you up on the latest stories from around the Sunshine State that you should know heading into this Tuesday morning. I'm Malia Leiden, and this is The Point from WUFT News. Opinions on how diverse Florida is may be formed by where you live. I spoke with the tributaries Andrew Pantazzi about a new tool using 2020 census data showcasing the state's racial diversity and segregation. Florida is becoming more diverse, which I think I and most people expected to see in here. But I think what's really stark when overlaying it on the map like this is how much the built environment affects how that diversity plays out, that we still have a lot of um, overwhelmingly white neighborhoods or overwhelmingly black neighborhoods that are starkly segregated. And particularly when you follow along interstate and state highways and how they serve to separate different neighborhoods, regardless of where you are in Florida, that I think this seems to be true. You know, it's true in the major cities like Jacksonville, Orlando, St. Petersburg, 
but it's also true even in smaller cities. And then the other, I think, you know, finding that's really important to see in a, in a mapped form is in rural Florida, how much an impact the prison populations make in artificially making certain counties seem more diverse than they are because their diversity is being driven by the incarcerated population as opposed to people who live there freely. And can you explain a bit about what you may have noticed regarding Gainesville's racial makeup? I saw it seemed heavily white near the University of Florida. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you see is you can kind of see where the luxury apartments are and where student housing is on campus, which is much whiter than when you get to Archer Road. And when you're south of Archer Road, you get to some of the housing there. I think you can also see where some of the grad student housing is because it tends to have a larger Asian population than the other student housing that's on campus. And I think that's also true for some of the, you know, you see, I think, some more diversity in where the married student housing is versus, again, you can kind of identify some of the whiter undergraduate housing that's on campus um, or the luxury housing that's close to campus by university or by 13th. Did you notice any elements of kind of segregation in Gainesville as compared to other places? Yeah, definitely. And again, I don't know, sometimes it's not surprising because people already know it, but it's still shocking to see on a map. And so in Gainesville, you get the east side, which is overwhelmingly African-American versus the rest of Gainesville, which is much whiter. And so you look and when you get to Waldo Road, cutting across anything east of Waldo Road, and really it's, you know, once you get to east of Main Street, you see a lot more neighborhoods that are nearly 100% Black or African-American in Gainesville. And I think that also reflects when you look at some of the student populations looking at um, Eastside uh, versus Gainesville High School. But it shows how much this far after the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and other important civil rights legislation has passed, there's been either no integration in some of our communities or even the opposite. We're actually seeing more segregation in some communities than we had 60 years ago. And what shocked you the most when you saw all of this information on a map and were putting it together? I think a lot of people understand how complicated Florida is as a population, because unlike some other states like Iowa or, you know, any number of other states where when you you mention the state, you have an image in your head of what that means. In Florida, if you live in Pensacola versus Jacksonville versus Tampa versus Orlando versus Miami versus Naples, like depending on where you live, you have a very different view of what it means to live in Florida. And I think that's also true racially, whether you're talking about rural farm workers in Southwest Florida, who tend to be more migrants, more Hispanic, or identifying as some other race, or whether you're in Miami, which is overwhelmingly Hispanic with in pockets of Dade County that have large Black populations, or the closer you get to the beach in waterfront property where it gets whiter. You see, I think just a lot of these How much if you live in one neighborhood, you might think that everybody looks like you. And if you live in another neighborhood, you might think differently. And so it really what this segregation does is I think it limits people's views of of how diverse Florida actually is and how many challenges we have when designing systems for how to deliver to people where they live. Because if 
the people who are in power or designing different systems, whether that's public health or vaccines or any number of other things live in one neighborhood. They have a very starkly different view than someone who might live somewhere else, especially when we get to those neighborhoods that are cut off by interstates or highways that have affected the, the transportation of those communities. Now, let's get into some other top headlines. An NPR investigation reveals Florida ranks second in government-sold homes in flood zones. Also shows that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD, disproportionately sells home in flood zones to those in households with low incomes. A spokesperson for the department, Michael Burns, says HUD is working with the Federal Management Agency to address issues. Out of 529 HUD-sold Florida homes in flood zones, 15 are located in north-central Florida. Pasco County Supervisors of Elections is warning residents that the office is not knocking on doors to verify voting information. According to WFLA Tampa, this has happened in at least three Tampa Bay counties, Pasco, Pinellas, and Hernando. Brian Corley, the Supervisor of Elections in Pasco County, says in one instance outside of his county, a door knocker pretended to be an official. Governor Ron DeSantis is directing his Secretary of State to launch an investigation into a Facebook program that could have given incumbent politicians an advantage over challengers. According to Politico, DeSantis is asking for the investigation to see if any state election laws were violated for the use of this program. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier this month that the Facebook program created a system where high-profile users were either whitelisted, which means they were exempt from Facebook guidelines over allowable content, or they were allowed to post content that violates company rules pending a review from its staff. The program has since been removed, but it was in place for portions of the 2020 election. Subscribe to The Point newsletter, which drops the latest Florida stories into your inbox every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Visit wuft.org for more information. I'm Malia Leiden, and you've been listening to The Point from WUFT News out of the University of Florida. Have a great day.